The closing verses of Judges chapter 8 warn us that whatever it is that's going to come next in the storyline of Israel's history is probably not going to be good and it isn't good at all. Judges chapter 9 lays before us some timely reminders as to the kind of unholy mess you can get yourself into if you live an unholy life. We see how easily the Lord's people can be swayed into making poor decisions when they do not have their hearts and minds set upon God and attuned to his word. And we're not surprised to discover that God has something to say about it whenever that happens. This is a chapter which is not about a human judge being raised up by God for the benefit of Israel. This is a chapter where God himself moves in judgment in a most remarkable series of twists and turns and he uses two wicked factions to execute his judgment upon one another. It's important to remember that God is actively at work in these events that are recorded in this chapter and this all takes place just a few years following the death of Gideon. God is the cause of the unrest between Abimelech and Shechem. In verse 23, we read that. And he does so in order to bring about his judgment against them. That's made clear in verse 24. And so that we don't lose sight of that, the chapter concludes by reminding us of this a second time in the closing two verses. We're going to tackle this chapter in three sections. And the first will be verses 1 to 21, where we see in Abimelech a scheming betrayal. Gideon had 70 sons through many wives. We read that in verse 30 of chapter 8. But Abimelech was the odd one out. His mother was not the wife of Gideon. She was a woman from Shechem who Gideon had taken as a concubine. That's in verse 31 of chapter 8. So these, these are the 70 sons of Gideon were the half-brothers of Abimelech. Now chapter 9 opens with Abimelech going to Shechem and speaking with his mother's family. And he persuades them that he, Abimelech, ought to be Gideon's successor. He, after all, is the only one of Gideon's sons who is a blood relative with them in Shechem on account of his mother. And it seems that on that basis and no other that they agree to that. He is our brother, after all, they say in verse 3. And with the deal agreed, Abimelech, accepts 70 shekels of silver, money which had previously been donated in the worship of their pagan god. 70 shekels. Each of Gideon's sons now has the price of one shekel on his head. And so off to Gideon's hometown of Ophrah goes Abimelech, and he has with him some hired mercenaries. And Gideon's sons are killed. 
And the phrase that we read there, on one stone, suggests that each of them were killed one at a time, perhaps in the style of an execution, maybe even as a sacrifice in honour of Baal. But one of Gideon's sons, Jotham the youngest, he manages to hide and escapes death. But as we see what, what Abimelech is doing here to the family of his own father, we see what awful degradation Israel has sunk into. Uh, the practice of killing off any potential family rivals like this is something that's become known as fratricide. And various ancient cultures are known to have adopted it, particularly in the Middle East. Probably uh, the best known of those, and probably the most recent, was the Ottoman Empire of modern-day Turkey, when the new sultan would routinely either kill or imprison his brothers, even uncles and cousins. It supposedly provided the new ruler with unrivaled authority and a stable platform for government or so the thinking went. If you've listened to the news in recent years, certain reports coming out of North Korea have suggested that the practice perhaps has not yet been completely eradicated in the world. But this is what Abimelech does. And with the job done, Abimelech is made king by the people of Shechem in verse 6. How is it possible that the people of God can get themselves into such an ungodly mess like this? Well, it's actually stunningly and frighteningly simple. And the answer lies in verse, verses 33 to 35, back in chapter 8. They have not remembered the Lord their God. If you'd asked these men of Shechem, whose descendants are you? They probably would have told you, well, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua. They would have claimed a very distinct identity. But the God of Israel who had done all this for them, the God of Israel who only a short time ago had delivered them from the Midianites under Gideon, he plays no part in their daily life. They have no affection or loyalty to God in their heart, none whatsoever. The things that they know to be true about God does not stop them from erecting other gods and idols and doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. But when we do that which seems, in our, which seems right in our own eyes, Proverbs 14 tells us, the end of it will always be the way of death. And you know, a Christian can be more like these Shechemites than we would like to admit. A Christian who knows a lot of biblical truth and nods in agreement whenever they hear the gospel being preached. But when it comes to permitting the Bible to govern and determine what they think and how they behave in certain areas of their life, it can be as if they have no knowledge of God whatsoever. You can find no distinction between them 
and an unbeliever in that part of their life or in this part of their life. Now we know it ought not to be so, but it can happen all too easily. We need to be on our guard against these things. The problem is that in my eyes, it seems right to me and I've convinced myself that there's nothing wrong with this thing. So here's a believer. They drive their car like a maniac. They've got 12 points on their driving license. God, they don't remember him when they get behind the wheel of the car. This member of the church is the biggest gossip you'll ever have the misfortune of listening to. Here's a Christian who has no control over their spending and they're constantly in debt. This one over here who's always causing quarrels and arguments amongst the Lord's people. One who claims to be a follower of Christ but <clears throat> they, can never, they can never exercise self-control when it comes to reigning in the materialistic coveting of what everyone else in the world is chasing after. Here's another church member constantly unhappy and unsettled because they know that the stance that the church takes on issue X, Y or Z is indeed clearly taught in the Bible. But their own feelings on the issue will not allow them to accept it. Yes, I know that's what the Bible says, but I simply cannot go along with that. And there must be a way of getting around it. In all of these kinds of things and many others, it's about having an area in your life or maybe even more than one. And in that thing, you will not remember the Lord your God. He's not allowed access there. His sanctifying work is not taking place there. It's like it was with King David that evening when his eyes fell upon a beautiful woman. What was it that went wrong just at that moment? It was this. He did not remember the Lord his God. Whatever God might have ex expected a man after his own heart to do in that situation, however God might have expected a man after his own heart to behave, David didn't. Suddenly, with his eyes fixed upon this woman, it was all forgotten, conveniently set aside, so that he could pursue his own agenda. Not remembering the Lord your God in that thing or this. Having a part of your life over which the Lord exercises no control. Not wanting him to because you don't want to change. It's time to change. It's a road that could lead you to ruin if you don't. Let's allow these clear warnings in the Bible to keep us on the right path, to keep us walking closely with the Lord. <clears throat> if you're not careful, all of these kinds of things, if they remain unchecked, they can lead you into a right sorry mess like Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem find themselves in.
in this passage. Well, Jotham, the younger son of Gideon, has managed to escape the slaughter and he gets to hear exactly what's been going on. And he delivers his verdict on the matter by means of this stunning story that he tells. He pictures a forest of trees trying to appoint one of their number as king. They approach, in turn, three trees known and cherished for the harvest that they supply. The olive tree for its oil, the fig tree for its succulent fruit, and the vine for its grapes in the production of wine. And each of these trees, in turn, declines the invitation, unwilling to surrender their current fruitfulness and usefulness, satisfied with their current position. And so instead, the trees end up turning to the bramble, a terrible choice. And they make the bramble their king, even though the bramble gives them a stark warning that it will likely all end in tears. Well, fire, actually. Verse 15. And there's an unmissable note of sarcasm from Jotham in verses 16 to 20. He says to them, if you have acted in truth and sincerity, if you really have given this the proper consideration it deserves, if you are showing the proper honour and respect towards the family and memory of Gideon in appointing Abimelech. Gideon, remember, that's the guy who fought for you and risked his life for you. Remember him? The one whose 70 sons you've just paid a man to murder? If you honestly believe that doing that is acting in truth and sincerity, then rejoice. And you and Abimelech will, I'm sure, get on like a house on fire. But if not, it will just end up with, with all of your houses on fire. We, we should take note of the olive tree and the fig tree and the vine. We see there an example of meekness, uh, the understanding that they have of the role which is theirs. They understand what it is that they can give and contribute and their heads are not turned by selfish ambition. Become king? Me? No. I'm quite happy to carry on as I am, thank you. That's meekness. My job is to remain where God has placed me and to be as fruitful as I possibly can be. In 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul talks about remaining in the calling in which you've been called. In James chapter 3, we're warned there about being careful that not many of you should desire to be teachers. It's all the same kind of principle in different, put in different ways and explained in different, in different ways. Uh, it's an onerous responsibility to be put in a position of leadership. You'll be judged twice as strictly as the rest, the Word of God tells us. And it should never be seen as a position to be coveted or desired 
in the way that people in the world covet and desire positions. And so in the New Testament, we see careful and prayerful consideration of such things by the whole church when people are called upon by the church to change their calling and to be appointed to a work in the church and on behalf of the church. We're reminded of the awesome responsibility which rests upon those who are appointed as leaders, especially on those who lead God's people. The Bible reminds us of the qualities which are required and they're not the kind of qualities that the world tends to look for. Shechem would never, got, never have got itself into this awful situation if Gideon, while he was in such a prominent position, had, taken, had not taken a concubine, but he did take a concubine. And this, in part, is the outworking of his poor choices while he was in a, in a responsible position. Abimelech wouldn't have existed if he hadn't taken this concubine. The meekness that we see an example of in those three trees is commendable. As for those who are seeking a king, in allowing themselves to think that they must have a king at all costs, regardless of who ends up being that king, well, that's a, a salutary lesson to observe here. This story is not about the rights or wrongs of having a king. It's about having the right or wrong king or leader. In our own affairs in local churches, who we appoint over the church as elders is crucial. Many churches fall by the wayside because the people who have been placed in leadership should never have been appointed in the first place. And what's the great requirement of those who do serve in that way? Well, various correct answers can be given, of course. But in the context of Judges chapter 9, the answer is this. They need to be those who never forget the Lord their God. That's a good thing to pray for church elders. Here is how elders must be thinking and remembering all the time, what does God require of us? How does God in his word direct us on this issue? You need to pray that of all the voices crying out to the elders to be heard, even if one of those voices is your voice, let them hear God's voice above all others. Of all the people who might be suggesting which way they think the church should go, may they take us God's way. Remembering the Lord your God. That, that is what lies at the heart of all of these issues because that is what the people are not doing. Let's learn from them. Let's never forget that from amongst men who we appoint as leaders, there will never be any who never fail, who never have any weaknesses, who never disappoint us.
But there is one king upon whom you may depend. In many ways, the stories of all of Israel's kings, the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, all of those stories should be causing us to ask, will Israel ever have a good king who never fails them? Oh, for a king of absolute truth and righteousness and wisdom and faithfulness. In all their failings and ours, we look with hope and thankfulness to the one who will never fail, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. We have in Christ our perfect and righteous King of love. All of these stories should drive us to look to him. In the second phase of the story, from verse 22 through to 49, we have a divine falling out. Abimelech has been in the position of king for three years when a rift starts to open up between him and the people in Shechem. Now, we're not told how it began, but we're told why it began. God ordained it. God is going to move in judgment against the wickedness of Abimelech and against the wickedness of Shechem. He's going to do that because of their disrespect towards Gideon and the great wickedness they meted out to his family. And God will use Abimelech to destroy Shechem and he's going to use Shechem to destroy Abimelech. It's a sombering story. The men of Shechem establish a band of highway robbers along the mountain passes, verse 25. Now this would have undermined Abimelech. He's the one who's responsible for maintaining law and order. You can imagine the people of Shechem on the local radio phone-ins complaining about the state of the country. And what is Abimelech doing about these muggings and robberies up in the mountains? But it's their own people up there doing it in order to provoke him. It's pretty sneaky stuff. And with the help of a dubious thug named Gaal, the people of Shechem decide that they're going to deal with Abimelech once and for all. The city mayor, however, Zebel, he's in cahoots with Abimelech and he tips Abimelech off and a plan is made to get their retaliation in first and attack Shechem at first light, the element of surprise and all that. The story of Abimelech's defeat of Shechem is in three parts. First, from verse 34, Abimelech has assembled his men in four companies during the night and he's lying in wait up in the hills. Gaal is up early and stands at the city gate. Dale Ralph Davis rather cheekily imagines him standing there with a coffee and a donut, wondering how the day is going to work out. And as he looks up, he sees Abimelech's men coming down from the mountains and he points them out to Zebel, who taunts him with a you should have gone to Specsavers moment. They're not people, they're just the shadows passing across the hills as the sun is rising. But Gaal realises, no, this is Abimelech and his men, and we're under attack. And Zebel taunts him about his earlier comment when Gaal had spoke very dismissively about Abimelech. And Gaal goes out with his men to face them, but he's defeated. 
The second part of Abimelech against Shechem begins at verse 42. It's the next day. And the unsuspecting inhabitants of Shechem, thinking that Abimelech's defeat of Gaal has been the end of the matter, they go out into the fields. Well, Abimelech is not in a merciful mood. He's not a godly man. And he attacks and kills everyone and destroys the city. But there's one building, verse 46, that's still standing. The temple of the god Beerith, which has a tower into which the last remaining men and women, about a thousand of them, they all flee there for refuge. And Abimelech simply sets it on fire in the third and final stage of the battle. And everyone inside the tower perishes. It's pretty brutal stuff. At this point, Abimelech has killed all the inhabitants of Shechem. So they have received their judgment that God has put against them. But there's no one left from Shechem to deal with Abimelech. So how's that going to resolve itself? Well, first thing we need to remember is this. No one escapes the judgment of God. It's something which we find stated in the Bible on quite a few occasions. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it is said about specific people at a specific time because of a specific circumstance. They will not escape God's judgment. But it's also made absolutely clear, for example, by the Apostle Paul, that this applies to everybody. All of us are full of sin. We're all sinful through and through. And in our sinfulness, we deserve the condemnation of God's judgment. And in Romans chapter 2, Paul states very clearly that it's a judgment that no one can escape. He actually states it by putting it in the form of a question. It's verse 3 of Romans chapter 2. He says this, Do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things but do the same things yourself, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? And Abimelech won't either. God isn't finished yet. Because Abimelech doesn't know it, but he has a divine appointment with a millstone. And so we continue from verse 50 in the final section. Because of what God has brought about, Abimelech's heckles are really up. And not satisfied with the destruction of Shechem, he turns his sights upon neighbouring Thebes. And God has something waiting for him there. They too have a tower. And all the people in Thebes take refuge inside the tower, just like the people in Shechem had tried to do. And they all climb to the top. Well, of course, what does Abimelech think? Huh, this is going to be easy. We've been here before. And he plans simply to set fire to this tower like he did to the previous one. But there's a woman at the top of the tower. And somehow, God's how, she has in her hands the top part of a millstone. Have you ever seen footage of uh, bomber aircraft during times of war being loaded up with bombs? And the air crew have written messages on the sides of the bombs. 
Uh, in World War II, you would often see things like to Adolf with love, all kinds of tongue-in-cheek British humour scribbled in, in chalk on the sides of the bombs. Well, that millstone in that woman's hands has a Bimelech's name on it from Thebes with love. And at just the right moment, as Abimelech is standing in just the right place at the foot of the tower, ready to set it on fire, the woman heaves up that millstone and drops it over the edge. So we've had jail with a tent peg, and now we've this unnamed woman with a millstone, both taking aim at an unsuspecting man's head. Amazingly, it didn't kill him. And as he looked up, and saw the smug look on that woman's face as she looked down on him. It was all too much for him. His pride would not let him be remembered for having been defeated by a woman, the ultimate humiliation in those days. So he has his young armour bearer run him through with his sword. In his mind, he was dying with a shred of dignity. The reality was that God had visited him with his inescapable judgment. And verses 56 and 57 conclude the chapter to remind us of that fact. God's judgment of sin is perfectly and absolutely just and righteous. It's as if each and every sin is weighed out in a balance and precisely the equivalent amount of justice is loaded into the other side. Nothing has been missed, nothing escapes. Every deed, every thought, every motive, every word, all will be accounted for and repaid in God's perfect justice. Wickedness must be repaid, and passages like this won't allow you to forget it, nor does it allow you to miss who it is who dispenses perfect, righteous, divine judgment from heaven. However, one of the attributes of God is that he is slow to anger. One of the most glorious truths about God is that in his mercy, he often withholds his judgment. He provides time and opportunity for men and women to repent of their sin, not to be treated as their sins deserve, and instead to be saved. In his grace, God has provided a way of escape. It's the only way. But God has provided it, a way that you may take if you haven't already done so. God's anger and judgment fell upon his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent him to die on the cross in the place of sinners as their substitute. Christ atoned for sins, paid sin's penalty as a ransom, as our Redeemer. In our stories, people thought that running to a tower would save them. It didn't, but there is a better, there is a perfect tower of refuge and strength 
to which you may run and be safe. In this story, there was no escape from judgment or from death. But this same God, in his great kindness, holds out to you mercy and grace, love and forgiveness. And they are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, you can know that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are forever saved and safe.